The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. When Rebecca and I were just about to have our first child, our daughter Scarlett, she's three, and uh, Rebecca was pregnant with, uh, with Scarlett, I got a piece of advice from my good friend, uh, you may know him, Pastor Dan. And he gave me a piece of advice. He said, here's what I would tell you. They, they, um, he, they already had kids at this point, a couple of their kids. And he says, here would be my piece of advice. Find your favorite thing. Like, whatever in your house is your favorite thing. I'm like, okay, got it. He says, and I want you to go home this afternoon and break it. I said, break it? I thought you were going to say, like, put it out of reach or, like, make sure it's secure. He's like, no, 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 just break it. I said, why would I break it? He says, because whatever it is, it's going to get broken either way once you have kids, and you at least want to have the satisfaction of breaking it yourself, okay? And I didn't totally uh, appreciate that, and, and uh, now, though, on, on the other side of, of uh, Rebecca and I having two kids, I have a little bit better sense of what, it's, what it means to baby-proof a house. Some of you have been through this experience um, to baby-proof a house. And I am um, a little bit uh, probably, well, Rebecca tells me I'm overprotective as a parent. If it was up to me, I would put life preservers on both my kids at all times, just in case of a flash flood. I just want to be ready, okay? And so she tells me I'm a little overprotective. So when I walk into a room, um, I automatically see all of the danger zones. I can't help it. I have this radar that goes off. Um, it, It doesn't help that my son, our youngest, he's one he will find, it doesn't matter if there's a pile of toys in the middle of the room, if there's like one set of exposed wires, he'll just go right to those, okay? He finds the dangerous thing and goes to it. So when most people see like a glass coffee table, I see an explosion of shards of glass going everywhere. When most people see like a nice bowl of hard candy, okay, I see a bowl of choking hazards right there access to my kids. Okay, there's something about creating an environment that's ready for someone who's at that stage of life. And some environments are geared towards that, that kind of individual, a little toddler, and other environments are not. Now, here's what we're talking about in this series, Messy. It's that many of us find ourselves in environments that are not set up with our convictions in mind. They're not built with our chosen lifestyle in mind. They're not, it's not built for whatever, as we're trying to follow after Christ, we want to live lives that you could say we're trying to live godly lives, lives that are pleasing to God. And sometimes we find ourselves in environments, they weren't constructed with that in mind. But yet God has placed us in those environments and we have to figure out how to operate within those environments. So for you, it may be where you work. Man, it's just not, the way this, the culture is, the way the company's set up, or the way the industry's set up is not set up for someone with my convictions, but yet this is where I find myself. It may be for you, your extended family. You know, my extended family is just the way we do things, the way we operate, the culture of our family, it, it's really not set up with someone with my belief system in mind. It's actually kind of hostile or antagonistic to someone that's trying to live a life like I'm trying to live it. 
Maybe it's your friend group. You used to go out and do stuff with friends, and now as you're following after Christ, you find yourself no longer interested in doing the things that they used to do. You find those things in in conflict with what you believe and how you want to live. But that culture of that friend group, it's it's not really set up for someone with your beliefs in mind. And so how how do you operate in that environment? It's messy. Maybe it's school, a class that you're in or the school that you go to. The expectation is that you're living somewhere somehow different than you feel called to live by God. And so that is messy. How do we operate in that environment? And we're looking at a guy named Daniel who was in a situation that is about as messy as it could be. And yet we can learn a lot for how he learned how to not compromise when he was in a very compromising environment. It's messy, but we learn a lot from his life. If you have your Bible with you or a Bible app, you can open to Daniel chapter 1 verse 8. As you're turning there, let me just bring you up to speed on what the context of this book of the Bible. Okay, if you can remember the history, if you, from what you know of the history of Israel, this is towards the end of the Old Testament, and this is one of the most significant shifts in the entire story, the entire narrative of the Old Testament. Let's rewind a little bit. You may remember that God had a promised land that he takes his people Israel to through leaders like Moses and Joshua. They settle on this land and God gives them these laws. They set up their society and it's set up to worship God. The government is set up along those lines. It's actually literally a theocracy is what this government is referred to as. It's God is literally ruling over this people, over this nation. And there's a king that God puts in place and the king is to make sure that the entire people continue worshiping towards God. The laws are to protect that worship and to protect that justice. It's all the society is set up to worship God. Well, then the other thing that's set up like that is the land. They have their, their faith in God is tied to their land. For one example of that is that they would take trips a couple times a year to come all back to Jerusalem and worship God for these regular annual feasts and festivals they would have as part of their worship. But another part of their faith was tied to the temple. The temple is where they would go to do these sacrifices before God, which was a pivotal part of their relationship with God. Well, what we learn in the beginning of Daniel is that along their, their history, they had these kings, famous guys like King David and Solomon, but after, over the course of a couple hundred years, generation after generation, these kings lead the people away from God. The people start worshiping idols, and finally God lifts his hand of protection off of them, and the Babylonians come in, the, the superpower of the day come in, and they conquer Jerusalem, the capital city. They take their, their king off the throne. They conquer them. They, put, uh, they destroy the city. They destroy the temple. And then they start taking people from Jerusalem into Babylon, into exile. And that is such a massive shift because if you're someone growing up in Israel, you're growing up in a society that's built around worshiping God, now you find yourself in pagan Babylon. Now you're under the rule of the king, king Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. He doesn't, he worships idols. The laws are not set up to protect your worship to God. Now they find themselves, they can't even get access to Jerusalem and their land because it's destroyed. So now they can't even travel back to these feasts and festivals. They're outside that land. Their temple is destroyed. How do they do the sacrifices? There's whole sections of the law that they don't even know how they could possibly follow if they wanted to. 
They're like fish out of water in a new environment, trying to figure out what does godliness look like in this pagan culture. That's where they find themselves in exile. Well, for a couple of them, it's even worse. You've got Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these Jewish boys. They're not only brought from Jerusalem to Babylon, but they are like the best and the brightest, so they're scooped up. They're brought to Nebuchadnezzar's palace, and they're trained. They get like a three-year education where they're trained the language of the Babylonians, the culture, the literature, the stories of the Babylonians, and they're being trained to be advisors to the king, which means that they're put in a class of what's called like magicians or enchanters. In, in essence, they are being trained to become sorcerers to advise the king. So they're sitting in class and they're being surrounded by these practitioners of witchcraft, probably being trained to do that. And they're trying to figure out how am I supposed to be honoring to God when this is the environment I find myself in. If that wasn't bad enough, they all, these four boys had these names that were these beautiful Jewish names that were declarations of worship to God, but all their names get changed to these idolatrous Babylonian names. So now, for example, one of them, their name meant who is like our God. And now it's changed to who is like Aku, one of the Babylonian idols. So can you imagine how messy that is? They can't even introduce themselves without making a declaration of idolatry. This is a really messy situation they find themselves in. But they're going to take a stand. And when and how they take a stand is very helpful for us as we're thinking through our own messy environments. Let's look at Daniel chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 8. Daniel 1 verse 8. It says this, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. If you were reading this in the original Hebrew, verse 8 starts with the word resolved. I want you to see the very first thing. They're in this messy environment. I've got an idolatrous name. I'm in sorcery class. I'm put in this group of people that have expectations on how I'm going to interact with the king. How in the world am I supposed to be a godly person in this environment, in an environment that's not built to, to be conducive to the way I believe God is calling me to live? And the first thing they did is they resolved in their heart. They resolved, okay, God, I don't know how to do this. You put me here. I don't really know what it's going to look like, but I know in my heart I am resolving that I'm not going to defile myself. I'm going to be a godly person in this environment. I have resolved that. I have drawn that line in my heart. He resolved it in his heart. But I want you to look at what did they choose to make a stand on. What they chose was the food. Did you notice this? Of all the things they could have taken a stand on, they chose the food. Now, this is an interesting, interesting decision. They show up in Babylon. They're prisoners of war. All of a sudden, they get scooped up. They end up in the king's palace. They're at Babylon, Babylon University. They've got like the Ivy League education of all of Babylon. Okay, this is a pretty sweet gig. And one of the perks that it tells us is that they eat off the king's table. In other words, I don't know what the cafeteria was like at the school that you went to or are going to, 
But their cafeteria, whatever was served the king, gets served to them. That's not bad. So this king, who's maybe the most powerful man in the world, can have any chef that he wants, makes up an incredible feast for that king every night, and the same food gets fed to these students who are learning about Babylon, being groomed, assimilated into Babylonian culture, being groomed to be advisors of the king. That's not a bad gig. But now time out for a second. What do you know about Jewish culture and particularly their laws? There are dietary laws in the Old Testament, right? There's certain things that those of the Jewish faith, according to the Old Testament, there are things that are clean and things that are unclean. There's things that they're allowed to eat and not allowed to eat. And so Daniel is looking at this, at this food and he's like, okay, let's just start with this. God, I'm going to try and be a godly person. I don't know how to follow all these things. It's a completely new paradigm. I'm in, a, in Babylon in a pagan culture, but with this right in front of me, let me draw the line. Maybe he was thinking, you know what? This is, one of, this is a perk of this position. Maybe this is one thing I have some control over. Maybe this is one thing that I can politely decline. Maybe this is one area I can draw a line and say, I am going to be godly in this one area. That's where he draws the line with the food. Now, I want you to notice here, before we go to verse 9, did you notice that it says he asked the chief eunuch? He didn't go in and say, we're on a hunger strike. No, how he goes about it is going to be very interesting. He starts by asking the chief eunuch, who's the guy who's probably over the entire household of Nebuchadnezzar. Let's look at verse 9 and see what happens next. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age, so you would endanger my head with the king? Now pause here for just a quick second. First thing you notice God's with Daniel in this, right? He, he's, he is honoring Daniel trying to take a stand. Did you see that? It says God gave him favor with this chief eunuch. The guy has compassion. He wants to help Daniel. You see that? And that's God meeting Daniel and these guys where they're at and joining in, them, in with them as they're taking the stand. But did you notice something else? What, what was the chief eunuch's response? It's kind of like he says, look, I want to help you. But if at the other end of these three years, you're all scrawny and unhealthy and gangly, I'm in trouble. Like you've got all these guys that are eating the best food in the entire kingdom and then you guys abstain and then the king sees that you refused his food and you're all sickly. I'm in trouble. And by the way, what it means for him to be in trouble means he might get beheaded. This is a big deal. I want you to see how messy the situation is. Daniel even taking a stand on what food he consumes is a life or death situation. This is messy. But Daniel's very strategic here, okay? He just made that request of the chief eunuch, but I want you to see what happens next. Look at verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths 
who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. I love this. This is so interesting. Did you notice Daniel started with the chief of eunuchs, but then ended, ended up talking to someone else? Did you notice that? He started with the boss, and the boss says, look, I, can, I, I could get in trouble. So then Daniel said, got it, I understand. Goes to the second in command, the guy that was hired by the chief of eunuchs, the steward. He pulls the steward aside and said, hey, let's try this. What's Daniel doing here? Is he going behind the back of the chief of eunuchs? Well, yeah. I mean, is he being deceptive? What's Daniel doing? Okay, I want you to see he's being so strategic. What he says is, look, to the steward, just test us for 10 days. That's all I'm asking. Test us for 10 days, see what happens, and then you make the decision. He maintains respect, but what has he done? He's actually helped the chief of eunuchs. The guy said, the boss said, I want to help you, but my life is on the line. So he goes to the steward, and you almost wonder if he's giving the chief of eunuchs deniability. He goes to the steward and said, look, let's just try this for 10 days and then you see what happens. Here's the other thing I like about what Daniel does here. Is he's respectful the entire time. He is, he is humble. He's gracious. But what did he just do? For that 10 days, he said, God, it's back in your court. You can eat. When they test us at the end of this, these 10 days, God, it's, your, it's up to you. If you want this to work, if this is the battle you're wanting for us to fight, then it's now in your hands, okay? We're, we're going to try our best to be obedient to you. We're going to see if this is how what you wanted. This was your battle at the other end of 10 days. He puts it in God's hands. All right, now let's finish this section up and see what happens. Let's jump down to verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate at the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. All right, now check this out. 10 days go by. Daniel says, hey, we don't want the king's food, which you kind of wonder if Meshach was like, hey, could I have a say in that? Because that sounds pretty good, that food, actually. Okay, what, Daniel knows what he's doing. He says, we don't want the king's food. We don't want the king's wine. Just give us vegetables and water. And at the end of 10 days, test us. Now, what did it say at the end of 10 days? It says they were healthier in appearance, which, okay, I expect that. You know, you're eating all these delicacies, this rich, uh, this, this, um, rich, luxurious food versus someone eating just vegetables and water. I can understand. They're going to be healthier in appearance. But then what else does it say? They were fatter in flesh. Now, I'm no nutritionist. But I'm pretty sure I heard somewhere once that if you eat just vegetables and drink just water, at the end you will be thinner than fatter. Is that true? Help me out here. Is that that's true? What just happened? They're eating all the delicacies, okay? This Nebuchadnezzar probably has like the best like baker in, in all of the world and he's making all these cakes and all these kinds of things, this gourmet food, it's incredible. They're eating vegetables and water, which, you know, Meshach's still a little uncomfortable with, this whole arrangement. And at the end of 10 days, they're healthier. Us moderns would say, well, we saw that coming. They're fatter, 
Do you see what's happened? This is a miracle. God has entered into this situation with them. And he's blessed them as they've said, God, we are just going to enter into this mess and take a stand. Now let's pick this apart a little bit. What was their stand that they took? They decided to draw a line on the diet. But I want you to to think about this. What's the diet they chose? Remember, they have these dietary restrictions, but what they asked was just to eat vegetables and drink water. Now, from even what you know of what's considered kosher, does kosher mean vegetarian? No, it doesn't. No, there's kosher wine, there's kosher meat that you can eat, there's fish, there's all different kinds of things, there's breads and all these different kinds of things. And so it's puzzled biblical scholars, why did he just choose to eat vegetables and water? Like, there's, there's other things that he could have chosen, and, and the best scholars can put together is think about it, they're, in, they're not in a context anymore in Israel that's geared towards people with dietary restrictions. So they don't have a kosher chef in the back making sure that no pork gets on the same plate as their fish. So they have to take extra precautions. They have to take the precautions of most likely the bread and the meat and the wine that's being served at the table was first offered up to an idol and then served on the king's table. And so in the midst of this messiness, they're in a society that is not geared towards how they've been called to live. So they have to enter in, find a way to draw a line, and honor God with it. They don't even want, even though they might be allowed to eat fish according to their dietary laws, they don't want to eat a piece of fish that's first been offered to an idol. But don't miss how messy this is. Because remember, their names that they answer to are declarations of idolatry. It's messy. But they first resolved in their heart that they're going to honor God and they're not going to defile themselves. They draw a line in the sand and they say, okay, God, this is something that we feel like you are going to call us to take a stand on. And then God meets them where they're at and affirms this is a battle I want you to fight. And the entire time, the way that they fought this battle was continually humble and gracious and respectful the entire way. Man, we can learn a lot from that, can't we? Here's why that text is so important to us is because, do you know how the New Testament, we talked about this last week, you know how the New Testament refers to Christians and people who are trying to follow after Jesus? It says, those of you in exile. Daniel's situation, that's our situation. The next time you're living in a theocracy, it'll be in heaven. In the meantime, we find ourselves in environments that are not geared, to, they're not set up, they're, they're not ready for people who have the convictions that we have or ready for the belief system that you have as the life you're trying to live of godliness before God or holiness. It's not set up for that. So when you find yourself in there, it's messy. It's like the salesman. You work for a company, You have a couple very large accounts that you're responsible for. And so then when they fly into town, you're responsible to entertain them. You're responsible to wine and dine these these individuals. And they have certain expectations of what entertainment looks like. Maybe your predecessor, they kind of 
had been doing kind of things, certain places they took them to, certain activities that they did. Frankly, that's what your company is expecting. Those are the places you're going to take them. Those are the things you're going to do. Those are the things you're going to set up for them when they come into Miami to party. But man, that culture and that expectation, that's not very conducive. That's not set up for someone that's got the convictions that you have. It's messy. Maybe it's the the broker. You work for a company. And kind of the expectation is when there's one of your leading clients, one of your your better clients, when they want a loan, you find them, you broker a loan for them, even if it means you have to fudge the numbers a little bit. And that's how the company is built. That's the expectation. That's the unwritten rule. And you're saying, I don't know how to be in this environment. It's not set up for someone who has the, the character that I'm trying to build. Maybe it's the firefighter. Man or woman, find yourself in a, in a firehouse for 24 hours, a couple times a week. You're like, look, I know that I'm in place here. I'm trying to reach these individuals and I'm trying to befriend them because I want to share God's truth with them. But, man, befriending them means being involved in conversations I'm not comfortable with. They are talking about things that, that I, I don't want to be a part of. They're looking at things. They're watching movies. They're, the dialogue there, it's just not set up for someone that has the convictions that I have or the, trying to live the life the godly life that I'm trying to live. Maybe it's your friend group. Maybe it's the, the, the students you hang out with at school. Maybe it's the, the people that you used to hang out with. Whatever it is, we, so many of us, find ourselves in environments that are messy because they were not designed with our, a life of following God in mind. So what do we do? How do we, take, how do we know when to take a stand and how? Well, let's look at what Daniel does. The first thing, step number one, We have to start with this. We have to resolve in our hearts what our allegiance is. You've got to define now, before you're in that that messiness of that environment, what is going to win. What of all the possible things? What is my first allegiance to? I have to resolve my allegiance because at some point I will come into conflict. What's going to win if it's between God or success? Because at some point, there'll be a decision where I'm going to have to pick between the two. Is it God or is it this relationship that I'm in? Is it God or is it prosperity? Is it God or is it popularity? I'm going to to have to decide ahead of time what's going to win. I have to resolve it in my heart because I will come into contact with a moment where I'm going to have to make that decision as to which is my priority. It will happen. I'll never forget, I was listening to a, a speaker. He was a, a, apparently a, a world-class classical guitarist. And he was a, a Christian, and he would play some, and it was a, a nominal. And then he would talk a little bit and share his life story. And at one point, he said, he said this statement, and I'll never forget it. He said, if you want to be successful, never tell anyone that you are a Christian. And I never forgot that. And at first I'm like, wait, that doesn't sound right. 
But then I took a step back. I'm like, okay, I'm not in his situation. I'm not in his shoes. So what must it be like to be a professional musician? Well, if you go around and the first thing you tell everyone is, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian musician, I'm a Christian this or that, well, they'll probably put you in a category where you'll be just in Christian venues when you're trying to be in the world. And so maybe he's trying to say that, you know, you have to be careful about those things. But what he actually said was, if you want to be successful, never tell anyone that you are a Christian. And the problem with that statement is that it betrays Who's really, what's really important in that equation. If you want to be successful, if that's the number one thing, if that's my goal, if that's my God, then this is what it will mean for my faith. But if my priorities are different, man, I'm going to keep God on the throne. If he wants me to be successful, he will make that happen. Does that mean that that, I'm not strategic with it? Does that mean that I go around and that's the front door conversation to everyone? No, maybe not. But I've got to decide ahead of time what is on the throne. What's truly my priority? I've got to resolve my allegiance because we will have to take a stand at some point. God did not send us into the messiness of the world to quietly wear a cross necklace and never say anything else. He didn't put you in that strategic location just to wear Christian jewelry. There's nothing wrong with that. But there will come a point in time where he's called you there to be a catalyst in that environment, to be salt in that environment, to be a light in that environment. So the day is coming when you will have to choose and and you will want to have resolved ahead of time what is the most important thing. And when it comes to making decisions, if there's an area that you're weak in, you're like, look, I struggle. Sometimes I put this before God and I need to not put that before God, then please lean on your Christian brothers and sisters or the Christian leaders around you to give you insight on that decision. Because if you're weak, if your heart is divided, you are heading towards compromise. It's the person that's in a relationship, in a dating relationship. Man, I think this is the person is the one. This is the one I, man, we love each other. And in order to keep this relationship, this person is continually pressuring me to lower my standards sexually. So to keep this relationship, I'm going to have to compromise sexually. But I've got to stop and ask myself, what's my priority? Is, my, is this relationship my priority? Or is God my priority? What's really on the throne? And if I'm struggling, find a Christian friend or a Christian leader that's going to speak into that. The first thing is I've got to resolve my allegiance. Here's the second thing. I've got to discern when to take a stand. Do you notice there's a lot of things that made Daniel's situation messy, but he resolved in his heart regarding this diet for a number of reasons. He chose this one, and God met him in that moment. Can I, I want to share a verse with you. It's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I want to share a verse with you that's going to be, I think, an encouragement to you. This is what it says. For we, it's talking about Christians, we are his workmanship. He created you, designed you. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Look at this. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. In them, can I give you an encouragement? Whatever messy environment you find yourself in, God has placed you there with works. He has already prepared before the beginning of time. He has specific works prepared for you to do. He has something specifically designed ahead of time that he wants you to do. So here's the thing. 
of all the battles right in front of you, wait on the Lord in His timing and discern which battle are you calling me to take. You're saying, okay, I get it. You're saying, pick my battles. No, that's not what we're saying. Pick God's battles. Because He has battles prepared beforehand for you. Can I encourage you to think of it like this? God placed you in this environment. Nobody else. He has a work for you to do. Wait and discern what that work is. But here's the other thing that that means. We can't judge someone else. It's not our place to judge someone else for the lines that God is calling them to draw. God has a work for you and for you to discern with the help of people around you. It's not for me to say, oh, they're compromising. They're compromising. How dare they do that? Let me give you a case in point. Daniel refused to eat the king's food. What about Nehemiah? Another guy we studied in the spring. He lived in Persia, similar context. He had to eat all of the king's food. He was a cupbearer. That was his job. He tested the food first. If Nehemiah and Daniel were contemporaries, they would probably have been tempted to judge each other. But God has called a work for Daniel, and God has called a work for Nehemiah. Daniel's, the work God is going to do through, through Daniel and his generation is going to blow your mind. The work that he has for, through Nehemiah is to rebuild Jerusalem after it's been destroyed by the Babylonians. We have been called to a specific work in our life. We have to trust that the same Holy Spirit is working in us, and we're trying to discern what that battle is he's called us to take. But discern, because here's the danger. When we're discerning where to draw the line, we can lean into one of two dangers. The first one is idolatry, where I'm actually worshiping success and prosperity, so I compromise because, well, I can't be... When I say that I I, I have to do this, what I'm really saying is, in order to be successful, I'm going to have to compromise. That's idolatry. But you know, we can also operate to the other extreme out of self-righteousness. We can enter into a context and think, well, I'm the sinless one here to judge everyone of their sins. What you're doing there is a sin. This conversation's a sin. The fact that our company does this is a sin. The fact that our family does this, that's a sin. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. As if we're the sinless one here to judge the environment that we're in. We're not the Messiah. We're not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was not waiting for you to get in this environment before he started working. He didn't need us. He has an environment that he's been at work in. He can do whatever he wants in that environment and he's brought you in with a specific work to do. Our role is to prayerfully discern, God, what line are you calling me to make? Now you might be in here and say, look, here's the line I'm struggling with. I'm wondering when it is time for me to just back out of this environment and leave. When do I quit my job? When do I, I distance from my, myself from my friends? When do I drop the class? When do I, I set up boundaries with my family? When does it that I just back out and say, look, I can't even be in this environment anymore? Think of it like this. There's a major difference between exposure and influence. And this is an important difference. If we're entering into the world, be ready because you're going to be exposed to some things you wish you hadn't been exposed to. But that's part of Christians entering into the world. That's what Jesus did by entering into our world. And that's what we're doing by entering into the world. There's going to be conversations. There's going to be things that you're witness, things that you get lumped into, things that you wish that you hadn't been exposed to. But it's when you see that starting to influence you 
when it's starting to bring you down with it, that's when you've got to start saying, okay, I need to set up some boundaries or I just need to back out of this environment. An illustration that Scripture uses to help us discern that is it uses the illustration of an animal yoke, which is if you have like two oxen, for example, pulling a cart, they'd put a yoke on top of them, which is they'd put one bar across both of their backs. It would loop under their necks so that they're both locked in together, pulling the same direction. If one oxen starts pulling this way, the other oxen is, the other ox is locked in and has to go that way too. And what Scripture warns is it says, be careful of being yoked with someone that has a different belief system than you do. Let's go back to that relationship where one person's being pressured to compromising sexually. Maybe the first question is that was a relationship that was unequally yoked to begin with, to use a scriptural term. That was, a, that was putting myself in a situation where I'm so locked in step with this person that this person goes this way, I'm going to have to go with them too. And maybe the decision is, okay, I've got to be careful of what relationships I'm in because there are certain levels of relationships that are going to influence me and draw me down with them. It's one thing to be in the world and be exposed to things. It's another thing for it to start influencing me. Here's the third thing that Daniel did, and we'll wrap it up with this, is I want you just to see, it's so powerful, how he took a stand. This is so important. It's never combative. He's never rude. He's never judgmental. He never said, man, look at this food. This is so evil that you're eating. I will have nothing to do with this. And look down on everyone. No, he was gracious. He was gentle. He was respectful. And he found a way to not make his decisions be a burden on everyone else. Did you notice that? He didn't say, hey, this is my stand. You figure it out. He said, let me creatively figure out how it's a win for you two. He was respectful and he was gracious. Christian, you may find yourself this morning in a very messy situation. Well, let's just start with this this morning, for starters. Resolve in your heart. What's going to win? What's really on the throne? Because inevitably, we're going to come into an environment where we're going to have to choose which is the priority. Is it God or this relationship or success or prosperity or whatever it is? What's truly on the throne? And if you're sensing your heart, man, I'm divided, then this morning, let's squarely put God on the throne and get back to saying, God, I'm yours. I submit to you. For some of us this morning, maybe you're here and that's actually a step you've never taken. And maybe say, you know what, I'd love to be in a relationship with God, but if I'm honest, my, my life is so messy, I don't think God wants anything to do with me. My life is just such, such messiness in my life that you say, look, I, 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 just, I just need to clean myself up first before I get back to God. But here's what we learn about the character of God. God looked down on the messiness, the sin of humanity, and he entered in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, entered into humanity. He took all of our mess, all of our sin on himself on the cross. And he paid for it on the cross, the penalty for our sins past, present, and future. And he rose again from the dead saying, it's finished, it's totally paid for. So this morning, if you want to find forgiveness from God, just simply, we're going to simply, I'm going to lead you in a prayer and you're going to simply accept what Jesus did for you on the cross and ask for forgiveness. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? 
that's you this morning, you're saying, look, I'm ready to be reconciled with God. I know my life's a mess, but I don't want to wait any longer. I just want to receive his forgiveness right here, right now. Then I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer and just say, pray this prayer in your heart, just between you and God. Say this right there in your seats. Say, God, thank you for what you did to save me. Thank you for what you did through Jesus Christ on the cross to pay for my sins. I make him my savior. I believe that you forgave me. You have forgiven me permanently. I want to spend eternity with you in heaven when I die. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.